Dude, we are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and Notch is a great idea. Hello and welcome to Debated Podcast, a podcast where we discuss politics and all the latest things going on. Um, we are, we're this week we are joined by Paul Sweeney, who is the um, Member of Parliament for Glasgow North East and is also the Shadow Minister for Scotland. So thanks for joining us, Paul. Um, before we get started, just would you mind sort of saying a bit about how you first got involved in politics? Yeah, um, well, I suppose it's probably more by accident than by design. Um, so I was interested in politics from a young age. Um, was always following newspapers, current affairs, um, and I did do those kind of subjects at university as well. Um, uh, but I actually went into engineering and ended up working in the shipbuilding industry for a few years after I left university and um, got involved with trade unions and other things in Labour Party organisation got involved through the independence referendum in 2014 uh, and increasingly got active in the party and um, just continued as a normal activist for, for a few years. And, of course, um, the snap election was called rather unexpectedly in 2017. And I thought, well, I'll put my application in to be a candidate for the area that I was born and brought up in, in the northeast of Glasgow. And I was picked at that time um, in the wake of a wipeout of Scottish Labour MPs uh, oh. in the 2015 general election, so there was only one uh, Scottish uh, Labour MP at that time in Edinburgh South, and my seat had previously actually been a Labour held seat from 1922, um, briefly went back to the Tories in 1931, then became a Labour seat from 1935 right through to 2015, so it was seen as very much in the heartlands of the, uh, the Labour Party in Scotland. And its first MP was actually the founder of Labour Party's brother, Keir uh, Hardy's brother, George. So it was as bit as Labour as you could get up until 2015. And of course, the big upset of the Scottish referendum turned all that in its head and the SNP gained the seat. Um, and then I was able to surprisingly win it back, um, as it was seen that takes overturned a 9,000 SNP majority uh, to recover the seat for Labour. Um, now, you mentioned uh, that the uh, first person to hold your seat uh, was George Hardy, Keir Hardy's um, brother. And uh, Glasgow has been uh, very much at the centre of the Labour Party story since it was founded. Do you think that in terms of the way that um, politics is progressing and uh, the Labour Party has uh, in the last few years become um perhaps more to the left than it has been uh, previously. Do you think that um, it suits Glasgow more to have a Labour Party that is perhaps more of to the left than it has been in the past? Yeah, I mean, my my, um, my constituents in the British Social Attitudes Survey is the most left-wing constituency in Britain, Um, but it also has the lowest turnout um, of any constituency at the general election, or in the last general election, it had the lowest turnout in the UK. So I think that speaks to an issue where people are looking for radical leadership, radical socialist ideas to come to the fore, but actually have felt increasingly alienated by the current political system. And it's usually the people who need the socialist and radical representation the most that uh, are actually the most excluded from society and engaged in society. And I think that's a major challenge. Um, but I think part of the reason why I was successful in recovering uh, Glasgow Northeast for the Labour Party in 2017 
was down to the fact they had a very radical manifesto um, that was clearly in the great tradition of Labour socialist values. And I think that really spoke to a lot of people across um, the UK, but particularly in Glasgow, we cut um, majorities uh, for the SNP down remarkably uh, across the city. And in my case, I was significant enough to actually win the seat back. Yeah, so um, obviously you did overcome like a massive swing against in 2015. There's a massive swing against Labour, and you managed to swing yeah, it back and win the seat. Um, yeah. But obviously now, at the moment, the seat is quite a marginal seat. How do you feel it's looking for the next election, whenever that may be? Could be very soon. Uh, do you th- feel like the SNP are sort of coming back, or do you think feel like that the sort of Labour roots in the city are still strong? Well, there's a very much a strong uh, bedrock of Labour support in Glasgow, and uh, you know, that's been consistent. I think what you saw was a surge in support for the SNP off the back of the 2014 referendum. And of course, a lot of Labour Party supporters voted for independence. And in my constituency, 57% of people voted for independence. So you saw a shift um, uh, away from Labour towards the SNP at that election um, and, and sort of, you know, galvanised by that um, decision in 2014. Uh, and I think what you've then seen is a, a weakening of that position consistently through each election after that. Um, we've seen a bit of division over Brexit. Uh, Mike has actually voted Remain uh, and is, is clearly very supportive of Remain, but also, again, in that referendum, only 50% of people turned out to vote in my constituency. So, you know, again, it's a bit disaffection and this, uh, you know, a sense of alienation that's crept in. But I think, you know, doing my work in the constituency, the canvassing I've been doing, you know, Labour's holding up. And in fact, the work I've been doing locally, I've tried to be highly visible, probably one of the, the, the more harder working MPs in Scotland uh, locally, um, has, you know, definitely built a lot of visibility for the Labour Party's work locally, championing a lot of local issues, particularly around asylum and immigration and uh, rights of those in the social security system. Uh, housing issues, transport issues, um, urban redevelopment issues, industrial issues around industrial closures in the constituency. So I've been doing a lot of campaigning locally, um, which has definitely helped to rebuild the credibility of the Labour Party in the area. So I think, if anything, um, our visibility and support can only go up. Um, Conrad just mentioned that uh, there is uh, potential for a general election to happen this year. And, of course, you've uh, discussed what you've been doing in your constituency. Uh, what do you think the um, position of the Labour Party is overall uh, across the United Kingdom? Do you think that uh, Labour is uh, ready to take on any potential <coughs> general election that happens this year or sooner? Or Well, I mean, it's a question of, uh, you know, when the general election will come uh, and it's it's increasingly, you know, an unstable political environment and it's difficult to see how with Boris Johnson burning so many exits uh, that we don't end up in a situation whereby default will be in a general election. But uh, I suppose that remains to be seen. Well, things will move probably quite rapidly after we return from the summer recess on the 3rd of September. Um, yeah, I think Labour has been laying the ground for fighting a general election for since the last one, really. And I've never been able to sit back and think I've got five years to sort of settle in and enjoy being an MP. You know, I've been working mm, hard yeah. every day uh, with the, the, you know, the, the, the prospect of a general election happening at any moment. You know, So I've never really been able to sit back and enjoy the, uh, the, the, the experience of incumbency, if you like. So I've always been working hard with the, 
thought in the back of my head that it could be an election at any moment. I think mostly Brentes have been doing that. Um, I think going into the next election, it depends all on the timing. You know, Labour wants to fight in a broad campaign that's focused on a multitude of issues, particularly around social justice and the you know destructive policies that mm. a decade of Tory austerity has had. But of course, sometimes you don't always have the benefit of uh, framing things. And I think one of the challenges we'll have certainly is to be able to sort of deal with a number of competing issues um, simultaneously, particularly around Brexit. So if the election comes before the Brexit date of the 31st of October, then clearly it's going to be put as a proxy referendum. And that will force people into a very binary position about, well, you're backing a Remain party or a Leave party. And I think that's where Labour increasingly needs to be very clear about what it's going to be on that particularly pressing constitutional issue. Um, so you're sort of talking about being clear on sort of constitutional issues. You've had recently um, John McDonald's made sort of some comments that were interpreted as being lending sort of support for if the SNP did want a, another independence referendum that Labour would allow that. And he had a bit of a back and forth with Scottish Labour leader Richard Leonard about that. What's your view on, on yeah. whether Labour should block that? Well, it was a storm in a teacup, really, and it was whipped up deliberately by forces that are hostile to both the UK and Scottish leadership. Um, what John said is actually entirely consistent with any reasonable party policy, um, which has been we don't agree with the second independence referendum, we don't wish one, it's not desirable. Um, but the, the reality would be, in a hypothetical scenario, if a future Scottish Parliament were to vote um, by a majority to have um, the majority of MPs on a manifesto that backed the second independence referendum that was very explicit then it wouldn't be practical for a UK parliament to deny um, the right um, which is currently reserved to, to hold that referendum so I think um, that context that specific context that's what John was saying would not be impeded by a Labour government if it were in power um, and actually bizarrely you had um, that position entirely consistent with what Ruth Davidson, uh, Ruth Davidson, and David Vendell, um uh, has said previously as well. So you actually had that position from some elements of the Labour Party that was probably to the right of the DUP on that issue, which is what was on. Um, now, you obviously mentioned the, the leadership of Scottish Labour, and you supported uh, Richard Leonard in the recent uh, uh, Scottish Labour leadership election. How do you think he's done so far? I think he's been quite effective at trying to shift the policy agenda onto issues of social justice uh, in Scotland, and particularly economic exploitation, and, in, and have a more active industrial policy in Scotland. I think it's been quite uh, difficult to break through, certainly in the current context of a Brexit-dominated debate, and also a debate dominated by the constitutional questions over independence. Um, but I think, you know, playing the long game is a good strategy because ultimately the Scottish National Party are going to face a very challenging few months in the future where I don't think Nicola Sturgeon will be leading the Scottish National Party into the next Scottish elections. Um, and it'll be a question of then they will have to find their leadership, they will have to find their position uh, that is consistent with what they want to do on independence if they're going to pursue that agenda into the next Scottish Parliament elections. Um, I guess there's still a question over where the UK will be in that, in that situation. Um, so there's a lot of challenges for all the different parties in Scotland, but I think Richard's set a very clear foundation for the Scottish Labour Party that it's a party focused on 
delivering social justice in Scotland. And I think that's actually uh, an issue that needs much more focus and he's providing it. But unfortunately, sometimes the oxygen isn't always there for that kind of debate. Mm. Um, So you bring up sort of um, delivering social justice in Scotland. And one idea that you've um, previously supported, which has been gaining a lot of support on both the left and the right, actually, is um, a universal basic income. Um, Now, obviously, we've seen recently in the presidential election, Andrew Yang has sort of got more and more support on that one issue, basically. Um, Do you think that's a something that could sort of gain support in the UK in the future? Well, we need a radical uh, transformation of how we approach our social security system. And I think that's got to be rooted in the idea that the nature of work and engagement in industry is transformed. You know, that the people will no longer go into, leave school and go into work in a, um, a sort of industry where they'll retire out of, you know, it's increasingly likely that people will be in and out of education and in and out of different jobs over the course of their lives and actually providing some stability to achieve their potential and be actually fully participating members of society at all points is is actually at the core of having uh, a system, a welfare state or a social security system that helps all. It creates a floor below which none can fall and everyone can rise. And I think the idea of a universal basic income is to accept that we need to eradicate poverty in our country and we also have to provide stability for people to have the freedom of action to realise their potential. Um, and that's the reality is, you know, people aren't going to be enslaved necessarily by, you know, low wage, um, poverty, uh, trap jobs. We have to actually create an environment where people can achieve the potential. And I always think of um, uh, the, the idea that like, the creative outpouring of the 1960s in Britain was in large part due to the welfare state that was put in place by the Labour government in 1945. You know, you probably wouldn't have the Beatles had it not been for actually creating uh, the, the welfare state. And I think that's the idea that you're unleashing a lot of human potential, a lot of creative potential in our country um, by providing that core basis of stability of the idea of creating full employment, of creating a system of basic dignity and income in which no one can fall below. Um, Now, you uh, mentioned how uh, UBI could uh, potentially help tackling uh, poverty. one of the real issues that has come out and been, um, been debated uh, recently over a no deal Brexit is um, the potential harm that it might have uh, to the UK economy. How do you think a no deal Brexit would impact on Scotland specifically? Well, I think it would be disastrous. You know, I've, I've, uh, I was just recently visiting a uh, uh, whiskey bottling plant in my constituency and they were saying you know the potential impact on the trading relationships between uh scotland's um the scottish whisk industry and its partners and its trading partners across europe would be disastrous you know so that's just one example uh, of many and the uh, you know the, the flight of property investment the flight of industrial investment would be really catastrophic so we want to avoid that situation where we create a huge about friction between our key trading partners, which would inevitably lead to an increase in unemployment and increase in social hardship. Um, I think it would be a disastrous situation. And that's why we need to do everything we possibly can to avoid it, and which is why I'm part of the group of MPs that is actually currently suing Boris Johnson in the Court of Session in Edinburgh to ensure that he can't prorogue Parliament uh, and by default allow us to crash out of the EU without a deal. Um, so you, you speak about... Um yeah, we want to stop no deal. Is there any kind of Brexit deal that you would consider voting for 
or uh, would you just support Remain? Well, I'm the indicative. Well, I, I mean, I started, I voted Remain, and I firmly believe that we should remain a member state of the European Union. I think the balance is that we ought to do that, um, given the risks and opportunities. Uh, I'm certainly no great Europhile. I think there's plenty of things that are deeply flawed with the European Union, not least the European uh, Monetary Union, which I think has been a disaster for countries like Greece and Spain and Italy. Um, and it has imposed severe um, internal devaluation on those economies, which has led to mass unemployment and severe hardship. Um, and I think that's the sort of flaws that we need to tackle in Europe. I think we're much better doing that as a member state, influencing it, particularly if we have a radical Labour government in power in Britain, uh, working concert with allies across Europe to do that. Um, and we achieve a social Europe as was our great vision in uh, the early 1990s. Um, I think that would be a great opportunity for for us to, to look at. But I think the balance has really got to be, we arrive back at a situation where no matter what option you look at, EA, EFTA, single market, customs union, etc., um, that the best balance of opportunity and risk is actually the current deal we have with the European Union. I mean, I've certainly been open to any sort of compromise. I've been trying to reach a compromise in Parliament by voting for, for example, the, the Common Market 2.0 proposal, uh, the Customs Union-based proposal, uh, a single market-based deal. You know, so you know, I've been open-minded about voting for a variety of different options and the indicative votes in Parliament, including putting any uh, deal to a referendum so we can check the detail is acceptable to the British people. Because, of course, it is a binary referendum on a very... Uh, your complex question and offered only a simplistic option of leave or remain. And actually many people uh, were clearly on one version of what leave meant. So I don't think we can claim a majority of any one version of what leave means. And that's why we have to return to people and put any detailed proposal back to them for verification and ratification. Uh, and that's very firmly where I sit just now in my thinking about how we proceed as a country. Uh, now, you've mentioned a couple of different uh, ways to stop No Deal. Now, one of the uh, suggestions as a, a means to stop it would be a government of national unity, perhaps led by Jeremy Corbyn as the leader of the opposition. Um, to form such a government of national unity, uh, Labour would need the support of groups like uh, the Independents and <coughs> Change UK. And I know uh, you and other people in the Labour Party have not been, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, particularly positive towards those groups. How cooperative do you think that they would be with a potential government of national unity? Um, well, I think we've seen play out in the last few days a sort of bizarre hostility to Jeremy Corbyn's proposal, um, which is constitutionally sound that in the event of a government losing a vote of confidence, um, that the leader of the opposition would, by convention, be entitled to have the first opportunity to form an alternative government. Uh, and that would be during the 14-day cooling-off period that would, would ensue after um, the government losing uh, a vote of no confidence. And I think in that situation, uh, it would be incumbent on the other parties to recognise what's in the national interest here, is to come together to prevent a no-deal Brexit. And it would be a government that would be entirely curtailed um, with the exception of pursuing an extension to Article 50 to prevent a no-deal and then to enable a general election to take place. I thought that was an entirely reasonable proposal from the Leader of the Opposition. And, you know, it was disappointing that the Liberal Democrats were so quick 
to pour cold water on it and then swiftly, under a great amount of public pressure, um, reverse the position. I was remained sceptical and I was trying to suggest that we need to have some sort of X-Factor style competition to find some random backbencher who would be able to command the majority of the Commons. I don't think there's the time to do that. I think it's clear that the only practical proposition would be to rally behind the leader of the opposition to do this temporary exercise. Um, and it's clear that some former Labour MPs are so embittered um, after their defection that they're actually not only willing to compromise and that uh, compromise their potential to stop uh, no deal, uh, they'd rather see his fallout from no deal than see the leader of opposition form a government, even if it was a temporary, a very restricted government at that. Uh, but also, um, they are in themselves fearful of a general election because they would um, lose their seats in it because they've been thoroughly displaced um, as a political force. Um, you speak about sort of not them not being willing to compromise to have no deal Brexit, but... Looking at it on the other side, would you be willing to support someone like Ken Clark or Harriet Harman, ones that have been suggested, if if it was clear that they, they were very close to for, forming a majority? I don't personally think they would, but let's say that did um, that was the situation. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, like you say, I just don't see how practical that proposition is. I think um, the idea that you'd be able to have some sort of... How, you, how on earth would you even begin to test that without having a series of runoff votes in Parliament to see who what random backbencher could command the majority? You know, it's bizarre. Um, there's no hard and fast way of proving that they were able to command the majority of MPs, you know, which is why I think it was ridiculous to rule out of hand the opportunity for Jeremy Corbyn to do that as the opposition. Um, I mean, if, if Jeremy was unsuccessful, then I think we'd need to be open-minded about if someone had the chance to do it. As a, as a neutral figure, um, or any figure really that could command that majority, then we need to seriously consider it. I would be ruling it out, um, and I'd be open-minded to looking at that. Um, now, of course, if a, uh, a government of national unity isn't formed within those 14 days, then a general election would be pretty much inevitable. And one yeah. of the um, big issues in such a general election would be uh, knife crime. Now, I know... Um, that knife crime is a you know a very big issue throughout the country, but there has been a lot, um, particularly through media representation in things like Tacker, No Mean City, in representation of the uh, Billy Boys, that links knife crime um, to Glasgow. Do you think that this media representation of knife crime as linked to Glasgow has fogged? the issue in terms of what what is actually happening in the city and belies any good work that has been done there in recent years? Well, I think uh, the perceptions rapidly shifted in Glasgow in the last 20 years or so. I mean, one of the great innovations of the last uh, Labour government in, in Glasgow is to introduce the Violence Reduction Unit, um, which was a radical transformation um, in how we approached the issue of knife crime. And it was to change the perception of dealing with it as a primarily criminal justice issue, but to one of it as a public health issue, uh, and actually to pursue interventions that were far earlier in schools and in youth clubs and other um, ways in which community uh, capital could be built up and a community resilience could be built up, and that actually had a far better effect of crime avoidance. Um, and it mm. was a really, really effective way of doing it, but also was combined with a very tough policy on ensuring that people carrying knives were were subject to significant uh, increased sanctions as well. So it was a kind of combination of much better positive intervention on the ground, but also 
ensuring that you know it was made clear that it was unacceptable to carry knives. And I think mm. it's led to a dramatic fall in knife crime and, and murder rates across Glasgow, which is a great success. You know, and you tend to not uh, see the same level of gang-related violence um, in the city that you would have seen 20 years ago, mm. which has been a great success. And I think it's a model that other cities in Britain are seeking to emulate. Um, staying on um, Glasgow specifically, um, it's only a couple of weeks till you've got the first old firm Glasgow derby of the, se- of the Scottish Premiership season between Rangers and Celtic. What do you feel like that this very strong, almost sectarian, possibly verging into that way, rivalry has on Glasgow? Do you think it can be a positive thing or do you think that it can get go too far? Well, it's an iconic sporting tradition in Glasgow. Of course, it goes back, you know, well over a century, um, and it's born, of course, of Glasgow's complex um, migration patterns over the last 150 years as well. Um, you know, there's a significant Irish Catholic um, diaspora uh, in Glasgow, and that grew out of it being an Atlantic-facing port city in the same way that Liverpool was, and there's a significant similarity in that city as well. Um, but, yeah, it continues to persist through uh, the kind of tribalism of the two football teams in Glasgow. And again, you know, it's something that there's still issues with sectarianism in the city, there's still issues with confrontation between uh, groups in the city that feel um, that they're being victimised by sectarian oppression, and it still remains a, a live and, and burning issue in Glasgow, um, particularly around the parades that take place in the city, um, but also um, through the football as well. And I think um, it's far less of an issue than it was in the past, again, but there still is a latent culture um, that perpetuates those kind of um, traditions that really are relevant in modern society, I would say. Um, but it's certainly much less of a problem than it was. And again, there's been great efforts put in um, to build those links between schools and communities and organisations that make it much less of a, a bitter and visceral um, religious-driven agenda and much more of a sporting rivalry, um, which is still hotly contested and very keenly contested, but it's far less vicious than it was in the past. Um, now, obviously, uh, sectarianism was uh, just mentioned, and um, in April this year, I think you uh, intervened in um, a, East, uh, a proposed uh, Easter Rising uh, march. <coughs> Do you think that um, with this year being for 40 years since uh, the uh, murder of Lord Mountbatten and the problems between um, the United Kingdom and Ireland over the uh, border with Northern Ireland, do you think that there is a threat that sectarianism could be on the rise, and how do you think we would uh, counter that? Well, I think Brexit has thrown into sharp focus some of the challenges we're now facing, um, particularly around, um, you know, this, the endurance of the Good Friday Agreement and the peace settlement in Northern Ireland. There's no mistaking that. Um, uh, and I do think that part of this cultural issue has bled over into an increasing aggravation between uh, communities um, and not just in Northern Ireland but also in, in Glasgow to an extent as well and I think these big constitutional questions over the future of the United Kingdom and the future of our relationship with the European Union have 
certainly blown apart in that. And there's a sort of culture war creeping in around these issues. And I think it's deeply depressing to see that happen. Um, I'm not necessarily thinking there's going to be a significant uptick in the problem, but I think when we've seen, for example, the eruption of violence in Derry recently, which led to the murder of a journalist there, um, you know, it's deeply mm. worrying. And then to see the same dissident Republican groups parading through the city of Glasgow unchecked um, was distressing. And that's why I, I did make it clear that I thought that was unacceptable and I thought they should be uh, banned from doing so. Um, but I think that was just a reasonable reflection of the disgust that many people in Glasgow felt at that particular time. Um, one of the interesting uh, things about the makeup of the current parliament is that uh, there are only um, three Labour MPs, including yourself, who have uh, served in the army, whereas there are um, quite a few more Conservatives who have served in the army. Yeah. Do you think that there's something about the army that necessarily more draws Conservatives towards it? Or, I mean, what's your self-explanation for that? Oh, it's a good question. Um, I don't really know, um, is my honest answer. I mean, I think you're right that perhaps there's a more martial tradition that's associated with the Conservative mm. Party. But of course, they're also the party that's massively cut the armed forces in the last 10 years, including cutting the army by a quarter. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's funny how they claim to be the party of strong defence, but actually have a pretty poor track record. Uh, and they've been responsible for far more defence cuts over the last 30 years than Labour has, um, which actually increased the defence budget while it was in power. Um, but um, I think maybe the traditions come from the social background of a lot of the people that come into different political parties. And I think the root cause of that is that the Conservative Party tends to attract a lot more people who are um, traditionally associated with being officers in the armed mm. forces and from public school backgrounds and quite privileged backgrounds. Mm. Uh, whereas the Labour Party draws a much greater cohort of people from charitable organisations, from trade unions, uh, from working class backgrounds, so less mm. likely to reach senior ranks in an organisation like the Army, for example. Um, so, it just, and actually, of the two out of the three uh, Labour MPs, so myself, Clive Lewis, and uh, Dan Jarvis, uh, Clive and I actually were territorial Army, mm. uh, Army reservists, we weren't full-time soldiers, so um, we did it I did it. I joined it because it was a good opportunity while I was at school and I used it to get um, a lot of training opportunities. And it was also a bit of uh, income while I was at university. You mm. know. So, um, and I fell into it because some of my friends were doing it. So, you know, it was good fun and uh, it was a great character building experience. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's maybe explains some of the reasons why um, you see that, that kind of difference in composition between the... the mm. Conservative and Labour groups in the Parliament. Um, it's probably to do with the socio-economic and class backgrounds and how they are selected as MPs mm. um, by the respective parties. And of course, the selectorate, if you like, of the Conservative Party is far more restricted and exclusive than it is in the Labour yeah. Party, which is much more of a mass movement party. Um, so you probably see that diversity. And I certainly see it's quite an obvious change in, in Parliament. You know, if you look at the, mm. the composition of the two groups, um, there's much more diversity in the Labour side. Um, now, I know that you're a, a great fan of architecture, in particular uh, Charles Rennie Mackintosh, who was 
one of the architects responsible for the um, Glasgow uh, School of Art. And of course, there have been yeah. um, two horrible fires at um, the School of Art recently. Um, what sort of progress has been uh, happening in terms of the the restoration of um, what was damaged? Uh, well, it's currently still um, in a kind of hiatus at the moment because um, investigations are still ongoing as to the circumstances mm-hmm. of the second fire, um, which was a great tragedy. Um, see, you know, such a wonderful architectural edifice destroyed. Um, you know, and the, yeah. the first fire was far less extensive. Um, the, first, the first fire was actually contained to just a small part of the building, mm. but destroyed the library. Uh, and it was much more of a basis to then reconstruct the building. Um, but now there's a whole question over the negligence around what happened with the second fire, why it was allowed to happen so close to the completion of the project. Yeah. Um, to restore it and why was it not contained earlier why was there not a sprinkler system installed why was there fire breaks not installed so there's a whole question over you know, potential criminal negligence there um, so until those investigations conclude the building's been stabilised so it's now a kind of shell with a mm. steel frame kind of holding the external walls up but at the moment uh, the decision on how to restore the building uh, hasn't been agreed until those investigations are concluded um, so when you were first elected, obviously, um, there was a few other new Scottish Labour MPs and there was also 12 new Scottish Conservative MPs, obviously <coughs> from Scotland trying to find their feet at the same time. Have you become friends with any of the people from across the other side? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a few of the Scottish Conservatives that, you know, they're all right to speak to. You know, we're not close friends or colleagues or anything, but we got on quite well. Myself and Danielle are two of the younger uh, Scottish MPs from the Labour group we got on quite well with uh, Luke Graham um, and uh, Paul Masterton who are two of the younger Scottish Conservative MPs um, also got on quite well with John Lamont as well because uh, um, Danielle knows him through the Scottish Affairs Committee so um, yeah we sort of build professional pleasant you know, cordial links with people but uh, there's not a sort of overarching enthusiasm you know with our politics we haven't cleared ideological differences um, but um, there's a clear um, you know, willingness to cooperate and be friendly you know, I don't think we're all at each other's throats all the time in Parliament it's not quite as bad as that but uh, no we, we got on reasonably well um, and we have a kind of friendly working relationship um, So coming up to the end of the podcast now it's been great to speak to you um, thank you for coming on um, but before we oh. go um, there's recently been in the news that scientists have sort of coming up with a plausible theory about the Loch Ness Monster. Have you ever okay. seen the Loch Ness Monster or do you have your own theory as to what, what the truth is behind it? Uh, well, I mean, I might have seen it at one point when I was uh, at a graduation party in Port Augustus, which is at the head of Loch Ness, and we were fairly wrecked at that party. Um, and I might have seen a few shadowy objects out in the loch at that point when we were... Uh, Jumping into it in the middle of the night, but uh, no, no, I've not, uh, I've not um, had a definitive uh, uh, sort of sight of anything up there. But um, it's certainly a lovely part of the country to visit, that's for sure. Um, and you know, it, again, I suppose that speaks to some of the stereotypes of Scotland as well. You know, like um, whether there's a sort of romantic idea of Scottish identity. You know traditional Scottish ideas, uh, and whether you know it can be reconciled with some of the actual 
significant social and economic challenges that a modern Scottish society has to face, you know. So I guess it's whether that's one of the most pressing issues to deal with or not, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> certainly in my constituency, not many people are thinking about the Loch Ness Monster, they're thinking about much more immediate issues and challenges of how to uh, feed themselves and provide for their kids, you know, and mm. deal with a very harsh economic environment right now. Um, and I think that's some of the stuff that really preoccupies my time. Um, but uh, it's certainly nice to get away up north on occasion uh, and go for hill walking and stuff like that. But um, sadly, much less so than since I became elected as an MP. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've, I've always wanted to visit Scotland. I never have had the time yet, but I, I always like Welcome to. I, I am... I am part Scottish, though I don't know far back in my ancestry, so it would be nice to sort of visit at one point. But thank you for joining us, Paul. Yeah, it's been great to speak to yeah, you, and no thanks for everyone for listening. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, Debated Podcast, and we're on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, um, and make sure you listen to the next episode. <laughs>